Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. It's Monday, February 20th, and I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. We have a great episode for you today, but before we dive in, I want to thank those of you who made Talk Nerdy possible this week. As you know, because I say it over and over at the beginning of the podcast, I've made it my mission to ensure that Talk Nerdy is and will always remain 100% free to download, which means you can listen to it anytime, anywhere, and you don't have to pay a penny. But the way that I can do that is through generous support from listeners like you, along with the ad sales that I do throughout the podcast. Um, we do have one ad later in the show, but at the top of the show, I love to thank those of you who have made it possible throughout the week. Um, there's a couple different ways that you can, actually, there's more than a couple ways. There's a few ways you can support the show, but you can find all of them by visiting my website, carasantamaria.com. There, you can click through to the most popular uh, form of support, which is my Patreon portal, where you can pledge to support the show on a, an episodic basis. You can also um, just click to do a, a one-time or a monthly recurring um, support via the PayPal link there. And lastly, you can buy merchandise on the website. And I've, I'm thinking about starting to sell one new product, which I'll tell you about um, once once I get it in my hands and can promote it a little bit further. And I do think there's a chance I'll have more of those Charlie and the Tortoise books on the website soon, so I'll be able to offer those uh, signed copies. It's a new batch, a new printing, um, and I do think they upped the MSRP just a little bit, but we hopefully we'll be in stock soon. In the meantime, though, I do want to thank those of you who supported the show this week. Um, first and foremost, through PayPal, a lot of times I get, you know, little donations here and there. But this week we got a big support from Rob Shrek um, from Chicago. So thank you so, so much for your generous donation, Rob. And then through the Patreon portal, I want to thank 
uh, Timothy Glover, Mark Hepburn, and Phil T. Bear. They are contributing at the highest level. And at the next highest level, I want to thank, let's do it in reverse order, Jeffrey Sewell, Brian Holden, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Jafe, Charles Payet, the Honorable Husband, Stuart Ogg, Jeffrey Perez, David Lacer, Christian Jeffrey, and Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa. Thank you guys so, so very much. All right. This week I have a great, great guest. He's a super cool dude who has a very interesting story, and his titles are um, never-ending. So let's see if I can get most of them in one fell swoop. He is a theoretical particle physicist. He's also... A YouTuber. He has a comedy um, band called Ninja Sex Party and is a cast member on Game Grumps on YouTube. And he is a co founder and producer of The Story Collider, which is like a live storytelling show that also has a podcast that accompanies it. Hopefully, I didn't forget anything. If I did, I think we probably cover it on the show. So, without any further ado, here he is, Brian Wecht. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So it's like a monsoon outside. It is. It is <laughs> nuts. It's, uh, I think they said this is the worst storm we will have had in like years and years and years. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's it said something like six inches of rain, which I'm sure to people listening from anywhere else in the world is like, okay. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. This is... Literally nothing. Yeah, Texas too. It's nothing. But in LA, it's a really big deal because the infrastructure like doesn't allow for rain. There's no drainage. There's no drainage. You drive along the streets and there's just puddle. I mean, not Mm. puddle, but like these thick pools of water and people are trying to get their cars Mm -hmm. through. It's like flooded everywhere. And then because it's been so windy, we have a lot of palm trees and the fronds fall off and Mm -hmm. they fill the road. And it's not like you know, it's more like when there's a down tree than when you just lose some leaves. Like fronds are so big that you can't really sometimes drive over them. Yeah, for sure. No, coming up here, I had to move around. It was a little maze. And of course, my house has no gutters, so it's like a pool of water in the front. Yeah, mine Uh, too. It's it's kind of fun. It's a challenge just leaving the door every day, especially with, we have a two and a half year old whose only goal when it rains is to find any puddle she can and just stomping it as hard as possible. See, she she knows the joys and the pleasures of oh, life. It's the best. There's Why nothing we better. Do yeah, <laughs> we do sometimes. We just we're like, yeah, forget it. We'll just get wet and then stomp around in puddles outside. It's I love that. Kind of awesome. So I have a ten pound dog. So not only does he not want to go out in this, but when he does go out in this, he's drowning. Oh, he just walked yeah, in on cue. That's dog. hilarious. He's drowning in it when he walks outside. You know, his stomach is just soaking wet when he comes back in. So we have to yeah. keep a towel by the back door so we can dry him off. We have a, a fifty pound pit bull. Oh, and, uh, and but she's terrified of the rain. <laughs> like will not go outside. So every time she we do force her out so she can pee comes back in and it's like a greased pig trying to get her so we can towel her off. Oh my gosh, that would be so hard. At least with him, I can scoop him up in a towel and kind of like baby swaddle him. Yeah, we we tried that, but it's, <laughs> it's like a two-person job to, oh no. to wrestle her and dry her off. But we did, we let him out twice today and he peed twice and I got home from the gym and my boyfriend was like, he crapped on the rug. I was like, yeah, I kind of expected <laughs> that. He will not go poop outside in this. It yeah, just no, takes too long. It stresses either. him out. Yeah. Do you want to jump up here? Come on. There he is. Killer's joining us for the show. Um, we'll see how long he wants to be here. He might give you guys a little bark, too, because oh. it's crazy outside. So he, this morning I woke up. He, he was sleeping next to me, and I woke up to him growling at the wind. Like you do. 
Do we get? I've only lived out here in less than two years now. Are there thunderstorms? Do we ever get them out here? It does happen. Um, We will get thunder and lightning, but it's not like Jersey or Texas, you know. And and they definitely don't come out of the blue. Like everybody knows about it for days before a thunderstorm. They're like batting down the hatches. Yeah, (laughs) I know. People are like loading up on supplies. (laughs) And you mean you must have grown up with hurricanes and stuff like that, right? Uh, Not hurricanes, but tornadoes. Tornadoes. Yeah, just and. In Texas, I mean, I think what most people know about it if they live there is that the weather is so unpredictable. It's just, you know, 75 one day and then like a few hours and it'll be in the 40s. And you get these flash flood thunderstorms out of nowhere. um, And they're really violent, you know, and then you have the tornado sirens going off and stuff. It's definitely not like that here in L.A. We we did not have that in Jersey either. I mean, the weather was variable from from day to day, but it wasn't just like, oh, suddenly the heavens would open up and it would start raining. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time in Texas. It's kind of amazing, but it's a little scary. But also... Every Texan knows how to drive in the rain. And that's why it makes me insane in Los Angeles because it's barely sprinkling and people are driving like there's three feet of snow on the road. Yes. I can't deal with it. I've noticed they do it one of two ways. They either slow down to a crawl or they floor it Mm -hmm. trying to get like as if that getting to their destination faster will make them them. safer. Yeah, yeah. It's like, come on, just don't drive in the lane where all the flooding is and you'll be fine. My favorite is when people cancel plans just because it's raining. Oh, that like, just oh, happened I, I can't, today. I can't come over today. It's raining. And you're like, what? That literally just happened to me. Well, I'm supposed to meet up with a friend here in our neighborhood, and then we're going to go to Pasadena to do dinner. And um, I'm still meeting the people in Pasadena after, but the one friend that was going to come along for the ride was like, I don't, can I just meet you in the hood? I'm not going to go to Pasadena. <laughs> like the rain. It's, like, it's not bad. raining that hard either. It's just <laughs> it's raining. So funny. But you know, it's it, I. The one thing I get about it is it does make you not want to get out of bed. Oh, for sure. You definitely want to wear sweatpants in this weather, especially um, when it's like a little bit chilly, like mm-hmm. it is right now. I yeah. love it, and we're drinking hot tea. That's oh my the gosh, best. it's the best way to podcast, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of talk about rain. I think we did that because it, you can probably hear it in the background. So get in the mood, y'all. Yeah, set in the scene. All right, so I'm super excited because, Brian, you have a super weird job, and you used to have also a super weird job. Not so much for my podcast listeners because I have scientists on the show all the time, but you used to be a theoretical astrophysicist. Not astrophysicist, just theoretical you are right. particle physicist. Particle physicist. Yep. Dang it. Um, I have so many astrophysicists on the show. That seems to be like the trend, right? Mm-hmm. Astrophysicists are more the ones who do TV and radio interviews. Yeah, the gen- there are a couple, with particle physics, there are a couple notable examples like Brian Green, mm-hmm. right? Brian Cox actually, I think, is particle physics Yeah, but even well. with Brian Green, I think he's more known for string theory, which yeah, is particle sure. physics, but it's like this bizarro version of yeah, it, right? Exactly. So, um, but you're right. He's not a cosmologist, but like uh, mutual friends of ours, like Sean Carroll, he's definitely yeah. a cosmologist. Neil and, Tyson. And Neil Tyson right, is a cosmologist. Yeah. And yeah, Astro. Astro. Um, so you were a theoretical particle physicist and you no longer are which is the funniest thing to say i mean once a particle physicist always literally exactly for sure yeah but um you no longer work as a particle physicist yeah so it's like did you get bored (laughs) (laughs) well okay so what what i do now is i'm I'm a youtuber Mm -hmm. so i have a couple youtube channels and basically what happened was i had this uh, the whole time i was doing physics so i went on the typical academic track you know grad school postdocs and then eventually got a professor gig uh, I was also doing comedy and music on the side because I've always done that. And uh, midway into my second postdoc, I was at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. So I was going into New York to do comedy and music and stuff like that. I started uh, a band slash YouTube channel called Ninja Sex Party. And then that just kind of kept going over the years. And 
you know, we, I was moving around because I was an academic and my partner, Dan, was, was largely based in New York, although then moved out here to L.A. And he wasn't an academic. No, not at all. Like mm-hmm. he was a basically a professional musician. I mean, he like lived in his car in Philly for a few years while he was struggling to make it. I love like, that you can do that in Philly. I know. I it love was, Philly. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, and when I met him, he was living, have you ever been to the McKibben Lofts? In Brooklyn. I haven't. It's like this kind of hipster commune, you know. So basically, is it in Williamsburg? Where it's is it in Brooklyn? Uh, shoot, it's in Bed Stuy, okay. I think. Yeah. So uh, it's like super, yeah. I mean, now <laughs> it's like gentrified like crazy, but that's when true, we met, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but Bed Stuy yeah. was really yikes for oh, a for long sure, time. For yeah. Sure. And I'm sure, uh, actually, I haven't been over there in many years. I think there's so still areas that, well, there's just still a lot of projects in Bed Stuy. Yeah, so sure. I think they're like pockets, but you're right. Everything's yeah. gentrified. And in New when York I now. met him, the answer to the question, how many people do you live with, was unclear. <laughs> he was like, I think it's 15, but it might be 20. Because oh it's God. like, who is paying rent? Who's sleeping on the couch? Who's sleeping here? And the crazy thing is sometimes, when I, before I moved to New York, I visited a friend of a friend. Actually, I think it was like a friend of my boyfriend at the time. Because um, I was going to go visit the campus where I ultimately went to school. And he was like, oh, we can stay with so-and-so. He lives in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And we get there. And it's like an unmarked door with no, yeah, no address, no anything behind like this big locked thing. And then it's like down in a creepy basement and there are just all these unmarked doors in the basement. There's a shared bathroom at the end of the hall. And his quote unquote apartment is like got a makeshift wall up in the middle so that it's split into two rooms. And like, yep, I don't think it was legal. I don't think it was legal. Oh, and there was kind no of like way. standing water on the floor. <laughs> at, 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 at the at the McKibben lofts, they absolutely had these weird artificial divides to section off quote unquote rooms. And there were sandbags in the apartment to prevent flooding. <laughs> it's and so I, great. And, and then you're like, dude, how much do you pay for this place? And he's like, 1800 a month. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, are you out of your mind? And at the meet, so I met him. He's like the single guy living in this, you know, kind of weird hipster kind of hippie place. Mm. And I, I was just married. You know, I was an academic and he's this unemployed kind of musician. I think he was working at Midtown Comics. And where were you living? Uh, I was living in Metuchen, New Jersey. Okay. So we basically picked a place that was kind of in the midpoint Halfway. between, yeah. Princeton and uh, and Manhattan. Makes sense. And so we started this thing, this band and YouTube channel. And as I was going through my academic career, YouTube stuff just kind of kept going. And then long story short, eventually the YouTube channel became so popular that it was a second full-time job. And in the meantime, I, my wife and I had a kid. And so I was a dad and a full-time professor and a full-time YouTuber. And I was like, Something's yeah, it's like three full-time jobs. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of had to pick one and stick with it. Obviously, the parenting thing wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> like, I'll just put that on the shelf yeah. until she's like 17. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I, after many months of stressing out, because I, I had, the UK doesn't have tenure. Uh, they have de facto tenure, but. Okay. Uh, the So I had a permanent, what's called a permanent job, which mm-hmm. is like tenure here. But anyway, it would be very difficult for, for me, me to be fired. It was like a permanent position over there. Gotcha. Uh, so I was, went through this whole thing of like, should I give up this basically lifetime job security uh, for career and entertainment, which is... Which is like totally freelance yeah, and undefined. Literally and, the opposite yeah. of job security. And you're like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. So <laughs> And luckily that. my wife was on board and uh, after talking about, you know, is this the right decision? Did she want to move to LA? That sort of thing. Uh, we went for it. 
I love that. And so how long have you been here in L.A.? You said two years? Just under. Yeah. Just so under two years. We got here July uh, 2015. So you did um, an undergrad straight into a Ph.D. or did you take time off? I took one year to teach high school. Okay. So, but uh, you did a bachelor's and then a Ph.D. You didn't do a bachelor's, then master's and Ph.D. Yeah. I mean, I did the thing where, like, I could have checked a box. Actually, I did do this. The pass through. I checked a yeah. box and got a master's, but... You know, that was just the first year of classes. Yeah. The, and then you did two full postdocs. How long were those? Uh, I did one four, and a half. Po four post postdocs. Four. Full. Four postdocs total. Holy uh, shit. Three years at MIT. Uh huh. Three years at the Institute for Advanced Study. One year at the University of Michigan. And then one year at Harvard. So, do people in physics, I, I have a friend who is um, uh, one of Brian Greene's students, and he's like, perpetually doing postdocs. I mean, mm -hmm. at this point, I yep. think he's actually moved over into another field as well, but he never really got a permanent faculty position. He would just keep going from postdoc to postdoc. Yeah. Is that just because it's sometimes hard to find a job or is it a choice that people make because they don't feel like they're tr like ready? No, to no, no, no rational person would say, well, I'm not ready for a faculty position. Yeah, like, like I want to do four postdocs in yeah, a row. It's just, there are very few jobs and like many academic fields, the hiring is, you know, certain fields are popular in certain years mm -hmm. and unpopular in others. And like, like when I graduated uh, in 2004, string theory jobs were, which, I, so I was more or less a string theorist, even though what I really worked on was supersymmetry and quantum gotcha. field theory. Yeah, but there's a lot of crossover there, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, and so string theory jobs, which had really peaked in like the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, were going downhill because the LHC was about to start and everyone was very excited about what's called phenomenology, which is basically particle physics. But like experimental particle physics. Well, yeah, but I'm talking right now even just in the theoretical mm. job market because theory jobs are sort of, you know, are a different thing than experimental jobs so there's and blah, blah, blah. theoretical particle physics that still kind of utilize some of the understandings from CERN and from... Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha. yeah, so But they're still doing the theory stuff. That's right. So roughly speaking, they're kind of to, sometimes people call it three camps of particle physicists, theorists. There are more formal pe mathematical people, mm -hmm. basically string theorists, although that's, these lines are a little fuzzy. And then there are what, what are called phenomenologists, which are people who are dealing with either current experiments or uh, future experiments, basically anything you might potentially measure, whereas like string theorists are typically not doing kind of data-driven I Stop. see. So you're not really doing the measuring when you're a phenomenologist. You're doing what a lot of people might do in other branches, like in biology and psychology, you might do this a lot where you are taking the um, data from another lab. You're pulling like database data and then you're doing a lot of manipulation with it and, and theorizing based on the physical. There's, there's a bit of that. And then there's also people, actually most of the people uh, when I was coming up as a, as a young physicist who were phenomenologists were doing it wasn't even so much data driven because the LHC hadn't started yet. Oh yeah, it was you know what uh, what models might we make of what the LHC might see and what tests could you make to check this model? So hmm. by model I mean set of particles and interactions. So if you were a, a phenomenologist who was interested in supersymmetry or whatever, you would say, okay, well I think these particles are going to behave like this, and here's a thing you can check to see if this is right. And then when the LHC comes online, here's a test that they could do to check it. Gotcha. So it's not even, it wasn't even data driven. Yeah. It was like, okay, well, in however many years, check this and see if it works. This is what's so funny about theorists in, in physics in general, is that when they're like, oh, I'm going to go back to the lab 
Like the lab is a computer. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or a, a pad. Or a notebook. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no, it's, it's so funny because it's still hours and hours of work. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Oh, in yeah. the lab, but there's no equipment in the nope, lab. We're super cheap. Yeah, like the extent of it. I think you mentioned this to me um, the other day, that kind of the most extreme version would be needing to go to a supercomputer somewhere. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And then so, that, was, that was relatively rare among, mm-hmm. among people I knew. Most of the stuff you could do, you could do on a... Actually, even a laptop. You didn't even need a desktop. But, That's crazy. Yeah. So every all the computationally intensive stuff I did, I did on Mathematica on my laptop. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, yeah. So I um I had a podcast a few weeks ago now, maybe a few months ago now, where I was invited to go down to Austin and um and moderate a panel at the Paramount Theater between um, Michio Kaku, Brian Greene, and uh, James Sylvester Gates. Mm-hmm. And so three string theorists yeah, kind of coming yeah, coming from, you know, different um, schools of thought a little bit, different labs and things. But we, we dove super deep into string theory, like what is it and what, you know, what does it mean and what could it tell us and how theoretical is it really? Is there any experimental evidence? And all of them, I think, collectively at various levels said like it could all be bullshit like it could all n- yeah it not would be intellectually out. dishonest to not admit that yeah and yeah. and some of them were like and it's not just like oh there's a sliver of a chance it's like there's a pretty good chance that this isn't anything but yeah, it makes sure. sense on paper and it, it's one of the best kind of options we have right now for sort of reconciling you know quantum gravity and some of these things so yeah. um so we we had a great chance to do a deep dive was what you were studying very similar to probably some of the things we talked about in that episode or were you on like a different kind of um, tack well let's see so probably the guy of those three uh that i had the most research stuff in common com with would mm-hmm. be gates okay because he's a, a supersymmetry guy mm-hmm. i mean he's he's kind of an old school supersymmetry guy, but uh, in fact, he was around at the very beginning of supersymmetry. I yeah. forget. I think he was one of like the architects of some of that, right? Yeah, he and so he had, he and other collaborators of his, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting story, at least to me anyway. They're, they're, they kind of developed this way of thinking about supersymmetry in this language, which he, I forget other people like Warren Siegel, I think is part of this crowd as well, uh, have this very particular language and way of thinking about supersymmetry that is, peculiar to them like if you their notation is something that really only they use oh interesting and i mean it's you can decipher it it's not like it's it's, it's impossible to tell what but like saying. you can tell exactly who they are based on yeah. looking at their notes so but if you read their papers you can be like oh that's a that's a gates paper yeah. sort of thing that's cool um but since i was a supersymmetry guy i probably had the most in common with him and i definitely read his papers and he was uh, doing all sorts of interesting stuff. Yeah, he was, and he was really great in the panel. I oh, do yeah. think it He's was awesome. Fun. It, it, absolutely, it was funny because we. I tried to stay away from it, but um, I can't remember if if somebody in the audience asked a question about God, or more if I was trying to ask about how they feel when theoretical. Uh, 
particle physicists or physics is sort of bastardized in like quantum woo woo. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like like movies like What the Bleep Do We Know and things right. where oh. people start to try to talk about consciousness in that way. And I think that Michio Kaku was the most sort of a, of an apologist of that. Oh, and for but sure. very funny it's the kind about of stuff it. he does. Exactly. Right? I mean, and like not I, to denigrate him. No, no, no. But. And the funny thing is the more that I got to know him, the more I really appreciated that like a lot of it was grain of salt. And a lot of it he's kind of doing in jest. Yeah. Um, like when he says God, he says God in the same way Einstein talked about God. Like I think some people take him to heart, but mm-hmm. I absolutely was like, I don't think this guy believes in God. But I do think he thinks that like God is is a word we use for some sort of cosmic whatever the fuck. Brian Greene, of course, was much more like materialist like me. Right. I could connect with him. And then uh, Gates, he never explicitly said it, but I was like, I think this guy might be religious. Yeah, I have no idea. Which is, I mean, it's so interesting to me that there is such a variation within um, within even particle physicists who you think are probably all atheists. Yeah, I mean, the default definitely is mm-hmm. atheists. Uh, but I, I know a few, I've had colleagues who were deeply devout mm-hmm. Catholics, you know, uh, definitely a few co- colleagues who were practicing Jews, but yeah. not, maybe not super devout, but definitely yeah. practiced religion um, I've but, definitely found it's yeah, easier for Jews to have um, more of a range of kind of like culturally Jewish and not at all religious, or even if they are religious, it's not very, um, uh, what's the word, like even, there's nothing evangelical about right. it. And so, and and not even literal, you know, yeah, and yeah. there are some Christian sects where it's much easier, I think, to reconcile sure. sort of the teachings of Jesus with um, with these deep physical phenomena, but it does become harder the more sort of literal yeah, you know, and I had a lot of Israeli collaborators too, mm-hmm. and of course, for a lot of Israelis, the the whole country is tied up in their identity, yeah. and you can't separate the country from the religion. But so, so much of it is just like cultural. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, it's so, interesting. I had yeah. I, my friend Jason Goldman. I don't know. Oh, yeah, he, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's been on the show a couple of times, and we've talked a little bit about being because he's the most Jewish person I've ever met, and the most atheist person I've ever yeah, yeah. met, and so it's so great because on the flip side of that, I've had. Um, David um, Silverman on the show who, mm-hmm. you know, and he's like super firebrand. Right, right. And he's like, you can't be an atheist, Jew. And I'm like, okay. So it's been yeah. great to hear those different perspectives. But you're actually sort of involved in that community. Maybe not so much, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, maybe not so much the atheist community, but definitely the skeptic community, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've done stuff with Nexus for, mm-hmm. for many years. Uh, and I mean, that actually is more or less what I do with the skeptics community is, 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 through, Nexus. is through Nexus. Yeah, yeah, and that's a much heavier so, science angle yeah, than some of the straight sure. skeptic things where it's really about like debunking Bigfoot and, you know, yeah. other cryptozoology. And my, my connection to that. So I, I actually, I started listening to the SGU was probably, it wasn't quite the first skeptics thing I did, but mm-hmm. I, I, I forget how I came across it. And so this is probably... 10 plus years ago. That sounds right, right? It's, yeah, they've been, been around, around for, for 11 years. Yeah, okay. So yeah. probably their second or third year, something mm-hmm. like that, I started listening to it. And Was it before or after Perry had passed away? It was after. It was after, but yeah. when Rebecca was there. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, yeah, so you're right. Probably about nine years ago. Something yeah, like that, that sounds about right. Um, and uh, I, I just had it heard, I think, recommended as a science podcast, that sort of thing. And I listened, I was like, oh, this is really great. And they were talking about Nexus. Mm-hmm. And this was, I think, the first year I was living in Jersey at the time, and I, I went to check it well, out. Yeah, it's right there because it's in New York. Right well, there. I don't know back then, but now it's in New York. Yeah, year. it was in New York. Yeah. And uh, for the the in-between speakers, they bring on George Robb. I love George. And I was like, wait a minute. My biology teacher was a George Robb senior 
who I know has a son named George Robb Jr. No. And so George's I, dad's a biology teacher? Yeah, he started out at my high school as <gasps> a PE teacher. And then apparently when I had him for biology in ninth grade, uh, and I'm kind of blowing the punchline here, even though I'm sure you can see it coming, uh, he, it was his first year teaching science. No. Yeah. And so after he was done with his set, I went up to George and I was like, hey, man, I, I think I had your dad for bio. <laughs> and he was like... Yes, you did. So we talked a little. That's hilarious. We had gone to the same school. He Are you guys the same age? He's a little older than okay. I. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I had a, an older cousin who went to that school that he, he knew a little bit. Um, and then through George, actually, I remember I, I stayed in touch with him a little bit. I wrote him an email and I said, uh, just basically saying, hey, you know, I love the SGU. And I heard him talking about something. If you ever wanted to introduce me, I would love to talk to those guys. And that's how I met Jay and Steve. That's and, awesome. And yeah, everything. we just yeah. recently had you on, didn't we? To talk uh, about yeah, some. A couple months ago. Yeah, some physics story that like was in the, the news. Five problems solved with one tweak thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was kind of flash in the pan, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Like nobody followed up on that. Nope. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's it's thanks to George really that I I'm, I started doing anything with the the skeptics community just because he was nice enough to, to introduce me to to Jay and then I got involved with ne- and then basically what happened is then I was a speaker at Nexus yeah and then uh, you and know, now you're involved. like really involved right yeah, yeah now I'm on the organizing committee and, gotcha. and stuff like that. yeah um, I have to say that George is probably the, my favorite discovery of he's the, the skeptic best. community I love him he's, he's just, incredible he's such a He's just such a sweet guy and a phenomenally talented musician, composer. And a phenomenally talented, like, MC. Like, yeah. He's oh, just he's the so, best, yeah. He's, he's always everyone's go-to because mm-hmm. he's so entertaining and... Uh. He's just so good at what he does. He's a total professional. He's just, yeah, he's just the best. I can't... I mean, yeah. literally can't think of a, a single bad thing about him. <laughs> I love him. Which is great, too, because sometimes I think the skeptics community gets a little bit of a bad rap, right? There are different angles to it and different approaches and different, like, groups that split out. Yeah. I think the core message and the core strategy of being a skeptical activist or being a skeptical thinker is something we can all get behind. Even sure. people who aren't skeptics can get behind it. Which is basically... Think about stuff. Yeah, think about stuff. And maybe, yeah. like, apply some scientific reasoning to yeah, it yeah. and don't be so truthy. Um as in Colbert's truthiness. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, with the skeptics movement, just like with any movement, it's made up of people. And oftentimes there tend to be more white male people than yep. other types of people. And then you might get some of the weird MRA types, the men's rights activists, right. or like the people who are pointing the, you know, um, what is it, like the... Re- uh, recessive left or not recessive. What's the word I'm looking for? Regressive. Regressive. Thank you. <laughs> the regressive left finger pointers. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it's really hard because when your core message is just think about stuff, but you have people on different ends of the political spectrum, there's infighting there. For sure. And I didn't realize so when I started doing skeptic stuff, I, mm-hmm. I did a few like talks here and there. And I didn't realize that. So of course I knew skepticism was an outgrowth of, the atheist movement to some extent. To some extent, but some people like to keep it so separate. Right. And I didn't realize that there were a lot of people from the atheist movement who were like all in conspiracy theory kind of people. Yeah. (gasps) So I didn't know that either. I didn't either. And um, so I I would give talks and occasionally there'd be like whatever skeptics group I was at would would have me in for a thing. And this happened a couple of times before I, I recognized it as a pattern there'd be some kind of older person there and they would ask some like way out of left field question i remember one guy asking me once he was like when i was growing up there were two galaxies outside our galaxy and now they're gone 
How do you explain that? And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking yeah, exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, well, galaxies don't disappear. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't even understand the question. Maybe we thought they were galaxies and it turned out they were farther away and yeah. they were a different phenomenon. You know, like those messier objects or messier objects. Messi- yeah. At the beginning, they were just all fuzzy things in the sky. Right. Like nobody knew what any so, of them were. Right. And so maybe data got better and things were reclassified. Yeah. And we realized, oh, that's a cluster yeah. and it's not a galaxy. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. look like one. So yeah. any, I asked uh, after the second or third time this happened, I was like, why are old guys asking insane questions all the time? And <laughs> the last time it happened, maybe this was not the case with the first two, but it seemed like a reasonable guess. Uh, they were like, oh, well, he's sort of a holdover from the atheist group. And, you know, a bunch, they've been so, they kind of went away and they were subsumed into the skeptics group. Interesting. And he, you know, he's not really a science guy. He's more of a you know, sort of anarchist, conspiracy theorist, atheist. Just very anti-religion and and all the garbage that comes with that. Yeah, but that doesn't always mean that you're a critical thinker. Right, which is something I never even thought of because at least in my... they all go together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I actually came to skepticism through atheism. I was was an atheist first, then I became a scientist, and um, I never knew there was an atheist movement. I openly talked about my atheism separately in blogs and things, and then people would start to reach out and say, do you want to speak at this event? And I got to be good friends with David Silverman, Mm -hmm. and so I would come on. I wrote the um, foreword to his book, actually. We don't agree on almost anything, but I think that's why he chose me. That's awesome. Um, And so I did a lot of stuff there, and then the guys reached out to me. I had been to, like, Skepticon, maybe Apostacon, but again, I kind of thought of it all as the same thing. Yeah. And then the guys reached out to me on the Skeptics guys. Guide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were like, hey, do you want to be our new co-host? And I was like, sure, but I don't consider myself part of this community. I don't. And they're like, first of all, you're a skeptic. And second of all, the fact that you're not like in all of the drama is like the most attractive thing about you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really funny because when I work with them, sometimes they'll like mention things that have happened in the past or they'll talk about like blah, 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 gate or blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. Yeah. And they're like, we're going to keep you pure. <laughs> that, I try to avoid all that stuff as well because yeah. I'm not super involved in the in the rest of the skeptics community. I tend to see it like on certain people's Facebook feeds. I'm like, oh, there's a thing happening. There's yeah, exactly. drama happening. Okay, well, read a little bit about it. Yeah, all I'm right, like great. an anthropologist. Yeah, I'm like, oh, exactly. let me kind of make sure that I have enough knowledge to not put my foot in my mouth. But yeah, and I, half the time it's like, well, I like people on both sides of this argument too. and I don't really know what's going on, so... I'm just going to kind of stay out of this one because what, what's the what use good of could getting come involved? Of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's either that I like people on both sides or I'm like, I don't know who these people are. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know why yeah. this is relevant. And it's always dumb shit. It's always social shit, sexual shit. Somebody's feelings got hurt, political shit, whatever right. the case may be. It doesn't get down to the core beliefs. And I'm not saying it's illegitimate when I say it's dumb shit. It's not illegitimate. No, for like sure. a lot of times it's really important. Um, Inspire and uh, inspires important conversations absolutely. about, you know, harassment and Inclusion. You know, how women are yeah. treated and, and minorities are treated at skeptics conferences. All this stuff is super important to talk about. I definitely feel like the science community has a leg up on that for sure. We still struggle with it, but I think there's more, and maybe it's because there's so much crossover with psychology and sociology between that and sort of the, even the, the biological sciences, and then you move into the physical sciences. Yes. Like physics, for example, and engineering and computer science have the least women, the least people of color, the least, you know, but I definitely think that when I go to science conferences and they have like, um, uh, non-gendered bathrooms and they have like a harassment policy and we try to do that with SciComm camp it, I, I don't know where it comes from but they're definitely way more ahead of the curve I'm starting to see that more with skeptic conferences yeah, and yeah. atheist conferences but I don't 
think that they've always been kind of at the front of the curve. I there. didn't see it super much, to be honest, in uh, in physics conferences, but it, it really is. It's so it's white all male yeah. that it's almost, I mean, it's not exclusively, but if it's like 10% women at a typical conference, mm-hmm. I'd be shocked. Like even mm-hmm. that seems high to me, unfortunately. Yeah, that's um, and it is changing, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's um, like at Caltech, which is a heavy, heavy like physics and engineering and math school, right? They don't mm-hmm. even offer certain... Like I have friends who have neuroscience degrees from Caltech, but they don't actually have neuroscience degrees because you can't get a neuroscience degree. Oh, there. Really? They actually are chemists or they're um, economists oh, wow. or they're, but they like focused on aspects of neuroscience. Yeah. The only way you can do neuroscience at Caltech is computational. Huh. That's the only neuroscience track. Oh, yeah. So if you want to do like my, one of my best friends, Crystal Dilworth, she's been on the show. She has a neuroscience degree, but it's, um, it's molecular chemistry. Hmm. She just happened to study molecules in the brain. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, but even there, I think they have gender parity at the undergrad level, which is great. great. That's awesome. It's getting to be closer and closer that at the under, I mean, we still have the leaky pipeline problem, but back when I was an undergrad, the physics department had very few women. Oh yeah. For me too. Well, I mean, I wasn't, I was a math music double major Mm -hmm. at Williams college and Williams, uh, sorry, music was of course pretty balanced as you guess, but physics, I think Williams was better than most, um, because there were, I mean, math was this, math at Williams was and is this like super inclusive, you know, really rah-rah supportive environment That's in the great. best. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think when I was there, there were, you know, each class is like 500 people and 10%-ish were math majors at a liberal arts college, mm-hmm. which yeah. is just huge. Yeah, it's that is really the, big they, for <laughs> Yeah, but they would department. hire these like just amazing, amazing faculty members who were just the best. And so um, were they a little more inclusive because of that? I think so. Yeah, yeah. that's and really cool. Yeah, it was definitely, it wasn't 50-50, but it probably was, you know, 60-40 or, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that's great. And also I, a lot of double majors. Mm-hmm. So that's it. I didn't see the issues with gender parity as much when I was, or lack of gender parity when I was an undergrad because I was a psych major mm-hmm. as an undergrad. And that's like predominantly women. Yeah, for so sure. So I never really ran into all the issues that I then noticed when I, because instead of going straight to my PhD, I, I I did a separate master's degree at my home university for my undergrad. So I actually mm-hmm. changed departments. I was oh, in the psych yeah. department for my undergrad, and then I went into the biology department for my master's. In Which is still a lot of women, right? It's still a lot of women, but it was drastic. And because I was in an electrophysiology lab, a lot of the students in my lab oh, were yeah. physics majors. Right. And so I got... I would go to the physics machine shop to fix something because we could we didn't have a machine shop in neuro and like m- one of my friends would be like let me take you I don't you shouldn't <laughs> be alone in those hallways like they're like rabbit dogs yeah, down yeah, there yeah. they haven't seen a woman in weeks so I'm like oh okay machine shop is always a special yeah. place <laughs> pretty crazy pretty crazy well I'm really um interested in t- we could dive back and maybe we will maybe I'll detour back into some um, particle physics stuff but I'm actually really interested in talking about the cool stuff that you do now with science communication and with we haven't even mentioned story collider so that's going to be great but first I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsors of this week's episode as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's get back to the show. So we are back with Brian Wecht. Hello. Is it Wecht or like Wecht? Wecht. Wecht. Thoroughly Americanized. Wecht. Okay. Where's it from? Uh, it is unclear to everybody <laughs> in my family. It I sounds was always German told, to me. Yeah, I was always told uh, like Russian-Polish border. Mm-hmm. It's Jewish uh, of some Ashkenazi, you know, stripe. And are you but, Ashkenazi? Uh, my father's family. Your is, father. Yeah. So technically you're not a Jew, huh? Technically, no. No, I was raised, so I was, my mother was Christian. My father was Jewish. My father's mother faked a heart attack so she wouldn't go to their wedding because my father was marrying oh, a, a Christian girl. Snap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was raised Episcopalian. Okay. Uh, which is my mother's. So you were a Christmas every year, no, not Christmaka. Yeah. So we gotcha. did, We, I mean, we did a lot of like, like we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. culturally Jewish stuff, but uh, anything explicitly related. I mean, I went to cousins, you know, yeah. bar mitzvahs and stuff like that. But any uh, like explicitly religious stuff we did in my family was pretty much all Christian. But like, for example, our Christmas Eve dinner every year was kosher deli food. So I we tried see. to combine the, yeah. the traditions. It's funny how many, my, my boyfriend came from a mixed family like that too. And you know, he's atheist now and like doesn't identify with any of it. Yeah. But I, growing up, it was like, yeah, there was a Christmas tree and a menorah. Like, right. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny to me. Growing up Mormon, it's like so, especially for the first few years of your life, you like aren't even aware that there are non-Mormons. Right, right, You know, right, right. it's just like, oh, this is how it is for everyone. So it's interesting to me when I get to learn about other people's upbringing and other people's yeah. approaches to religion. I think it's it's pretty common also in, you know, Jersey, New York, to have mixed Christian Jewish families. Absolutely. I feel like half the people I went to school, uh, like elementary, high school, whatever, with had a Jewish parent and a Christian. Absolutely. And in Texas, I knew two Jews. Yep. Too. I went to one of their bar mitzvahs. There was a Stein and a Diamond. They were my only Jewish friends. Uh-huh. Um, oh, and eventually a Bosky. That was when I was a little older. But um, that was the extent. And they were all very, um, there was no like orthodoxy. You know, they're mm-hmm. super reformed, like right, super right, chill. Right. They may have gone to Hebrew school, but definitely nobody went to Jewish day school. And there was not. And oh, then, yeah. yeah. We didn't really have that. I mean, definitely there was a big Orthodox community, of course, in New York. And you know, in L.A. One in, yeah, in L.A. Yeah. too. In New Jersey, there must be one. But everybody, I didn't know any like really hardcore Orthodox Jews. Everyone was reformed. I think I've told the story before, but when I first moved to New York from Texas, which was like the biggest culture shock anyway, I lived in uh, Forest Hills in Queens Mm -hmm. and outside of my balcony window, there was a, um, a, there wasn't really a synagogue. It was like a Jewish center. I don't know what they're called. Yeah. 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 And, um, it was. Yom Kippur, maybe? Oh, I'm totally fucking this. There is a specific name for this one tradition. Purim? Was it Purim when they went? Maybe it was like with a chicken? 
Oh, no, I don't even know. No, there's about. something. And I mentioned it to my contractor, and he was like, holy shit, your entree into Judaism was that. So I'm looking out the window, and there's a rabbi, and he's holding the Torah, and he's got like a chicken. And he's doing all this crazy shit with the chicken, and then they would sacrifice the chicken. Oh, wow. And no, this was, I have no idea what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, and you would see these chicken coops at this time of year all over at these, like, black kosher kind of, like, places, and mm-hmm. it would be, like, chickens for sale. And I guess it was a, a tradition where you'd kind of put the sins into the chicken and then sacrifice oh, the really? chicken. Oh. Very strange. But I was like, what is this? <laughs> and like, yeah. what did I move into? And now, of course, like, all my friends are Jewish because right. I live in L.A. And yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. A And there's, you know, Hasidic Jews walking around the streets and stuff. Oh, here. sure. So, it, it blew my mind when I when I found out that, you know, to like a real Orthodox Jew, I, I am not even vaguely Jewish. Oh, absolutely like, not. I was like, these people do not, I, you know, I look at these guys on the street and I recognize some commonality, at least ancestrally between us. That is not a two-way No, thing. absolutely not. Because yeah. you, I mean, these are the guys who, I think this happened also to my boyfriend once he was walking around his neighborhood and he is technically Jewish. Like his mom is Jewish, but like he doesn't ascribe to it at all. So he kind of was like not the nicest when he did this but somebody walked up to him on the sabbath right and was like are you jewish and he was like no and they were like can you turn like my can you i need you to turn my refrigerator like something mm-hmm. had happened at their house oh, yeah, yeah. and they needed to do something because if they hadn't like something yeah, yeah, would go yeah, wrong yeah. and he was like jesus christ you know like went in the house and like helped mm-hmm. them flip the switch or whatever because it's a totally different world yeah yeah we just don't you know have that there um, was a, a town not far from where i grew up in new jersey that had i might be getting this slightly wrong but basically had a uh, a magic line, I think it's called in Eruv, outside so that you could go outside, but it defined outside to be inside. Uh-huh. So you could say technically you were inside because you were inside the boundary of this line. <laughs> and you could check online if the line was activated or not. Oh so it like had a, a website. And I say this not to ridicule it at yeah, all. Yeah, no, but, it's but just it is. Like, it's... The thing that fascinates me the most about Judaism and always has is the... The hacks. Like, yeah, like the the, spe- the the way in which it's all about obeying the letter of the law, but not the spirit. Absolutely, right? You're yeah. going to try to work that, like that text as hard as you can mm-hmm. to find a way around it. You saw and the phone that, I really un- respect that. undials, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like randomly dying all, so you undial the number, and yeah, that's so it's, funny. <laughs> or the, you know, in Israel, like the elevators that on uh, on the Sabbath stop at every floor. Yeah, so and then you, you don't, don't have to. to push them. And it's it's yeah. so common now that um, like my refrigerator. So we have like Mila, like fancy appliances. Yeah, when yeah. we did our big house renovation, our refrigerator has a Sabbath setting. I don't know oh, what wow. that means, uh-huh. but it's a Sabbath setting. That's so it's like wild. so common, and people I guess need that to incorporate into the, because actually some of those aspects of the faith aren't even like they're not Hasidic. they're a little more orthodox mm-hmm. but they're definitely not like full hasidic jews yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. that require that it's just people that aren't like fucking atheists like you right <laughs> <laughs> dirty atheists um so anyway we haven't even talked about some of the really cool you mentioned it at the beginning but some of the really cool psycom stuff that mm-hmm. you do now so the the youtube channel that was gaining the success um ninja sex party yes um are you still doing that oh yeah yeah that's a big part of and what is I that do your main YouTube? Do you have more YouTube channels now? I have two YouTube channels. So one Ninja Sex Party is one I started, and that's honestly what I spend most of my time mm-hmm. doing. We're a musical comedy, so I write the songs, we shoot music videos, and we we just started touring. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we've been playing 
Uh, we sold out the Wiltern a couple months ago. Huh. And like, is it is it different genres to go with the different songs, or do you have like a one genre like your sound, and then it's just the comedy aspect that changes? It it varies a bit, but generally speaking, our style is very like eighties synth pop. Okay, but we do. We, we kind of move around a lot in between genres. But uh, not like Flight of the Concords where like no, they, you embody a, a kind of a genre by the, the song itself and yeah, you actually no, no, like no. change your costuming and stuff. Not really. I mean, most of what we do is like our last album was very kind of hair metal-y, but there was one song we did which sounded kind of like a medieval ballad. And so we <laughs> do try, you know, just to make it interesting, try to move around genre-wise a little bit. But generally speaking, it's like 80s synth pop. And is that just because you love 80s synth pop? It's, it was actually because it's what, so for up until about a year ago, mm. everything we were doing music-wise, I was just doing myself on my computer for the instruments. Mm. And the instruments I could get to sound the best were synthesizers, because otherwise it sounded like kind of derpy trumpets and stuff. Yeah, definitely when you're doing a lot of, you're right. Like, com- like computerized. It's it's much better when they're when they have that already computerized yeah, sound. Exactly. And so, do you play any instruments? Yeah, I play. Well, I play keyboards and I play a bunch of woodwinds. So I play saxophone, <gasps> clarinet. I um, love that. I used to play a lot of tuba, but I haven't done that in many, many years. Oh, I now. love it so dorky. It's the so, dorkiest instrument you can play. It's the tuba. <laughs> it's because in in high school band I played barry sax, so I was always on the bass line and my uh band you know band leader was like you should just learn to play tuba because you're basically <laughs> playing tuba parts anyway so just learn to play it and then and then you were like this is way less cool <laughs> yep. but in college uh, i was a member of the it's it was technically a marching band mm-hmm. but it was really like a stay in one formation then scramble into another gotcha. during the football games and then i got to play sousaphone for that Neat. and we had the this like giant white fiberglass sousaphone that I got to traipse around with. And that was, yeah, I mean, it's not the coolest instrument in the world, but it was definitely, there's something about the raw power of a sousaphone that is just it's pretty unmatched. Cool. Yeah. Especially when it's this weird, like white fiberglass thing. It's very Seussian. Indeed. I should say. Um, yeah. There used to be an ad on MTV. I remember it's like a cartoon dude and there was a meter kind of like you would see on like your, your equalizer. Mm-hmm. And it was like, sexual interest or whatever like sexuality based on instrument and the Uh, first guy was like you know a metal guitarist with the long hair was like and went all the way up and then it was like you know the drummer and then the last one was tuba and it was like (laughs) (laughs) like, so sad yeah i'll always love the tuba (laughs) that's great i think that's awesome i will say in college i played it a lot and would when it uh when october came around there was this like spike in the number of gigs i'd get because it was oktoberfest season So me and a couple other students formed this little oompa band Mm -hmm. uh, that would play like six or seven gigs just in October. Essentially, we'd play. They barely even pay us. They'd just get feed us sausages and then that would be (laughs) it. Uh, And then that was the bulk of my tuba playing. So wait, you said that you played a lot of brass. Did you did you also say you played woodwinds? Yeah, woodwinds mainly were what I did. Oh, really? Mainly saxophone for many years. Saxophone saxophone was my main instrument, but I also played clarinet. Do you know what my favorite instrument is? What's that? Oboe. Oboe is beautiful. Oboe is yeah. so beautiful. It's so yeah. sad. It's like a super depressing instrument. Yeah. Like, but it's gorgeous. I love the English horn, right? Which is the mm-hmm. it's slightly larger oboe thing. I just yeah. there's something about the the tone. It's a little mellower mm-hmm. and it still gives that oboe sensibility, but yeah. sort of takes the edge off a little bit. Sure, because yeah. oboe has like a deep kind of um granular. Yeah, yeah, vibe. yeah, yeah. It's so pretty. It that goes so well with strings to me. That's the kind of music that just really moves me yeah. the most. Um okay, so and your your musical partner in Ninja Sex Party, you only have one bandmate? 
Uh, we, uh, yep. So Ninja Sex Party is technically the two of us, mm-hmm. and his name is Dan. And, and what does he play? Uh, he's just a vocalist. Oh, okay. So you do all the backing tracks, and then he sings. It's kind of like um, a postal service. Yeah. So it, okay. it was that way up until about a year ago, and uh-huh. then we started working with this uh, four-piece band from Toronto called TWRP, where basically they're they're kind of like a Daft Punk sort of disco pop mm-hmm. uh, thing. They all dress up in these awesome costumes. Does anybody play guitar? Yes. 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 The, uh, the the main vocalist plays, uh, the character name is Dr. Sung, and he plays guitar and talk box. Yes. So oh my it's God. like drums, guitar, bass, guitar slash talk box. They're the best. And so now all of the tracks we do there are band on it. And so I do synths and keyboards, um, but then the rest of the instruments going from, instead of being purely digital like they were when I was doing it myself, you have more of are that. Now played by them new wavy kind of sound yeah and they're they're awesome they're actually literally just going back to toronto today they were out here for a month and we recorded all these new songs and shot we actually we (laughs) we're doing a cover album coming up and we shot a video for we did a cover of pour some sugar on me Mm -hmm. by def leppard and we uh hired a bunch of porn stars to dress up in candy bikinis (laughs) and throw skittles at us did you um did you change all the lyrics no, nope. you just covered it. Our okay. covers. So we've we've had this weird kind of dichotomy now where we have our, our comedy albums that we release all original comedy songs. And then last year we put out a just a straight ahead cover album of 70s and 80s songs. We did like Rock With You by Michael Jackson. But then do you kind of change the the sound at all? Yeah. yeah so we, to make it a little more synth poppy. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we move around a little mm-hmm. on the genre for those two. There, most of those were pretty straight ahead straight covers. covers. Uh, but that did really well, and so we're just in the middle of wrapping the next cover mm-hmm. album right now. Oh, fun! Do you yeah. wear costumes? Are you like Devo? I love Devo. Yes, I well, I dress up as a ninja, so <laughs> oh, okay. I'm That's I'm great. in full ninja costume. I'm also a Devo fanatic. Oh my god, like, fanatic! I love it. Love Devo. Love it. Um, <laughs> Which is rare, yeah, I think. I mean, people days, do yeah. like Devo. They do. But Gates of Steel is the greatest song ever. Um, yeah, but that is a great song. There are definitely people who like don't get it. Do you also like? You might not. Do you like any punk rock? Is that uh, kind I don't of know. Feeding? I mean, I like. Yes, I mean, I, I like what I, I like what I hear, but I'm, I didn't do any like super deep dives into punk. Sure, sure. But since you like that kind of synthy poppy sound, yeah. see, one of my favorite band. I shouldn't even call it a band because it's one dude, and I know one other person on the face of the planet that what actually likes him. Adam and his package. I've heard of him, but I don't know anything about him. I think you would love Adam and his package, like just based on the kind of sound that he has a very particular voice and sometimes people have a hard time with certain sounds just because of the voice like i also really really love a band called coheed and cambria oh yeah coheed actually but some people hate claudio's voice uh what's the guy's name miguel is that the main who's the main claudio claudio sorry yes um he was on my other youtube channel game grumps oh that's awesome yeah um but but before i forget do you know mccluskey or future of the left no. I think you would like them. Okay, cool. I love this. Future of the Left is very punky. I think they're Welsh. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I, I know, they're mostly the same band, except Future of the Left has a little bit of synth stuff in it. Sure. Very like, hard, it's almost like Rage Against the Machine style, but. But uh, like more synthy. Yeah, a little more I synth-y. like that. I think you'd like it. Do you guys have a theremin? 
we we have we use that sound occasionally, but mm. we don't actually have a theremin. I tried to learn to play theremin. I got really so into it hard. for a while. It is so fucking hard to play. Did you have the dial one? You know, you can get the one where it's no. sort of like a cheater theremin. No, it's like I a didn't valve trombone. <laughs> so you have one where you, you it has a little dial or a little slide where it actually tells you what the notes That's are. That's genius. No, yeah. I just had like the standard Moog with the one antenna here and the yeah, loop yeah, yeah, antenna, yeah, yeah. and then That's I would the watch real the real one. Yeah, and then I would watch. Uh, videos of there's this one theremin player that Clara you can, Rockmore? No, it's a guy. Oh, okay. But I remember her. But yeah, she was she's old the school. Original. It was like yeah, black yeah, and yeah. white, all yep. of hers. But then there's a guy that Moog actually ended up hiring and taking on the road to help promote because he's so phenomenal and he does like the theme from Amelie oh, and he wow. does like Crazy by Narls Barkley and it's phenomenal. It's amazing. Watch it, these like subtle shifts in Ugh. hand position, right? And the it's genius. Yeah, See, incredible. I would think that you'd be super into theremin because you're a physicist. Yeah, I, I, I love theremins. I just it's don't have like, the to play. You need like perfect pitch to really do it, right? Yeah, you, have you do have to have an incredible like, ear and you also have to be really still. Like yes. it, your arms must get super sore because it's like, you know, the hand that does the volume probably a little easier because you're just phrasing. Yeah, yeah. But the, or sorry, the volume's on the loop isn't it no the loop is the pitch Loops and then the, the pitch, yeah, yeah the volumes on the long antenna but for the pitch it's literally the fingerings are insane i think so or maybe i think it's the other way around actually i think the loop is the volume you're right and the, the yeah yeah and the long antenna because yeah. it's longer and you can yeah. do more but um the fingerings are insane they're like barely moving and it go and it's oh my god it's but the theremins are fun to build yes yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. Of, I had a theremin once that was like a little baby head mm -hmm. and its eyes glowed red and it was super creepy and you could Have you seen the documentary, the, the theremin documentary? No, is it good? Uh, I mean, I saw it probably like close to 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but I remember it just being amazing. Like theremin, all these crazy other instruments that he built. Really? One of which I remember was like a, like a room, which was like a giant theremin. <gasps> so you'd move around the room and- Why is that not like it, at the Exploratorium? I know, right? So it's something we he built build in, in like the 30s or something too. Right. What if it was like a room theremin, but also a Tesla coil? <laughs> that yes, would be please. like my heaven, I I'm, think. I'm into it. <laughs> okay, so so Ninja Sex Party, super cool synth pop, but you said the other group. Yeah, is, is called- Or the Game, other YouTube channel. Yep, is Game Grumps, and it's a gaming channel. Um, and so there, with Game Grumps, there are two main guys that are mm -hmm. on Game Grumps that uh, put out two episodes a day where they just play a game and kind of talk. And one of them is not you. Neither of them is me. Are you? Do you produce the channel? So what I do is I'm part of. So one of those guys is my partner in Ninja Sex Party, Dan. Dan. Mm -hmm. um, the other guy is this guy named Aaron who started the channel. And then I'm part of. I put up other videos on the channel. Mm -hmm. I play, you know, other games and gotcha. and just produce additional content for the channel. And I'm kind of one of the other personalities mm -hmm. on the on the channel. YouTube loves gaming. YouTube loves gaming, gaming is by far the most popular huge to the extent that they had to like change their algorithm so that the homepage isn't always just gaming. Yeah. It's a, I mean the, the, you know, the biggest YouTube star in the world, PewDiePie mm -hmm. is, a, is a gamer. A lot, the, generally speaking, the bigger YouTube channels that aren't just hashtag channels or genres yeah. are, are all gaming. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like really loud outside. Really <laughs> I love it. Now. It's really coming down. Uh, yeah. You, gaming. I didn't even realize. And so, you know, I talked to people roughly my age about mm -hmm. YouTube gaming and they're like, who wants to watch, you know, watch a bunch of guys playing video games? That's how I feel about it. But people do. People, you know, the, the way I think about it is it's like, it's like a podcast or it's like a, yeah, a radio true. show where... From at least for Game Grumps, it's not true for every gaming channel. It's not really about the game for us. Mm -hmm. It's about the personalities and the banter. And so, well, that's why PewDiePie's so famous. <laughs> like it's yeah, because yeah, yeah. People, people love him. Yeah, exactly. It's not because he's a particularly good gamer. It started no. because he was like 
he would play scary games and then he would get scared. And yeah. that was like hilarious to people. Right. And that's, I mean, people just like the, the people on the game. There's some gaming channels uh, where it's all about like, okay, we're going to, you know, give you strategy and that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. We do nothing like that. In fact, I think the number one complaint from our fans is that we're terrible at video games. That's hilarious. Which is actually true. And so you do play video games. It's not a tabletop gaming. It's not a whatever. It's a specifically video game. Do you play a certain type? Everything. I mean, okay. my wheelhouse is retro is like old school nes oh that's like uh, the only way i, I like to with. play yeah, I yeah. Love it. and we I, have everything i don't like, like controllers everything. that have too many buttons like i think that's why i really yeah. took to the wii when it first came mm -hmm, out and mm -hmm. i played that a lot because it was really physical and it was one of those things where it had um I, I, the point i think is to make it as intuitive as possible yeah. yet you know a playstation or an xbox it's really intuitive to a gamer but it's sure. not really intuitive to a non-gamer. Yeah, and to me, I, I'm just too old. Like, I grew up with the simple NES mm. controller. I mean, even, I think, Super Nintendo came out when I was in maybe late high school. We didn't have a Super Nintendo. Yeah. We just had an I NES. Had I did have a Game Gear, though. Do you remember Game Gear? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, it yeah, was yeah. the first portable color screen. So that was really exciting right, right, for right, me. Right. My sister was really into her Game Boy because yep. she's four years older than yep. me. And then I had a Game Gear, which I promptly lost, and my parents would never let me have another one. But we played pure NES, Mario yep. 3, all oh, day, yeah. all, every all, day. All day. All day, yep. every day. Um, love Dr. Mario. Love. That was one of the game, one of the mm -hmm. videos we did on Game Grumps. Awesome. I, I used to play Dr. Mario with my sister all the time. We would like, Ugh. you know, argue over which music. Do you want fever or chill? Yes. You know, right. And we even in high school, I used to be like a total burnout pothead and we would hang out at my friend Jesse's house and he had a shitty little like cathode ray tube TV uh -huh. with like um, an old school NES and like the only game that wasn't completely busted was Dr. Mario and we would play that nonstop. And, and you know what? It still holds up. I mean, it I played does. it like less than a year ago. It's That's still true. fucking awesome. Because I had it on my Wii like because you could get all the classic yeah, 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 games yeah, yeah. and I would play that and the cool thing about Wii was that you could connect to like remotely to people and my mm -hmm. mom was a huge Tetris nerd when we were growing up and so we could play Tetris That's while awesome. she was back in Texas That's so it was really fun yeah do you have a a, a, a DS a 3DS mm -mm. should uh, I get one yeah like the I Mario World 3D is really, really, really great. Yeah, it's really fun. Oh, cool. And then you can probably still get some of this sort of like arcade style games mm -hmm. on it, right? For sure. Okay, and cool. you can get, I actually, I think they did, released a bunch of the Zelda games for oh, nice. DS as well. Oh, Zelda really was fun. fun. My, my, the other thing I was really into more than Nintendo in like high school was mm. uh, PC adventure games. Sure. You yeah. know, like the, all the Sierra games, King's Quest, Police Quest. All I didn't that play stuff. any of those. Those were that those are my favorite. I played puzzles, like um basically. what was it called? Like Centipede? Yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't even Centipede. <laughs> it was like it was like worm. I don't even remember what it was. It was just Worms? a thing going around and eating Oh, I don't like I, back on the PC like forever ago. It was yeah. in all of our classrooms. It was cut but that was like the era of um uh Oregon Trail. Uh -huh. Like though you know, like mm -hmm. really early. Um but I definitely yes. Did you ever play Simon's Quest? No, I love Simon's, Simon's Quest. Quest, and also we play the Spy versus Spy game a lot. My, oh, like I've my seen dad's that one, but I've game. never, I've never yeah, played it. That was a go-to, yeah. and um, Boy in His Bubble. Yes, I remember Boy in His Bubble. That was fun. Oh, and Paper Boy. Paper Boy, yeah, oh Paper, God, Paper Boy was great. So fun. Okay. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, we so can you, do this all day. I know. Day. So you've got gaming and you've got uh, comedy music. Yep. And those two things are probably kind of like your... I don't know. Is that like your bread and butter? Would you call that your day job? Yep. That's my day job. That's so your day basically job. I, I am, a, am an employee of Game Grumps mm-hmm. and then, and that's, you know, I, what I do, I play games on the channel, also run all the social media for that mm-hmm. channel. And then that takes up, you know, half of any given day and the rest of the day is into sex party, writing, recording, yeah, doing business stuff. Do you like to play tabletop games? I, d- I do. I don't play it that I much. I want to start doing that more. I feel like yeah. we should do board game like events or groups. That'd be great. Get people it's together. super popular. It's right so now. fun. And yeah. I got There's so many great games. Too. I didn't really know much about it. And then Will Wheaton actually had me on tabletop a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was a crazy um, experience because I know nothing about it. And the way that he usually does tabletop is he puts people at different, like at the same level together. So he has like the novices do an episode. Mm-hmm. And then and he was like, you don't know anything about gaming, but you're super smart. So I'm going to put you in with me and with fucking Rich Sumner, you know, the guy from, <laughs> yeah, 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 who's like a madman, Mad who's like Man, a huge yeah. gamer, oh, has his sure. own channel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then this girl, Jen, I can't remember her last name. She's a Canadian game designer. Wow. And the four of us sat down and I was freaked out. And then I fucking won. <laughs> and it was so cool. Uh, really, really fun to do. And that like sparked my interest. So I, yeah. he used to have these events. He and Felicia Day for uh, Geek and Sundry would have these events here in LA for Tabletop Day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd invite all these people and you'd play games all day. And then you'd go home with a bunch of board games. And it was so fun. And yeah. I even have a bunch of them in my closet. And I'm like, we should play games. And there's so many good ones too. I think, I, I mean, there's a real renaissance in tabletop gaming that's been going on for many years now where the games, are, I mean, the design is great. The yeah. gameplay is interesting. I have interesting. like three versions of awesome. Catan and I don't yeah. know how to play it. Right. So like, I feel like I should sit down and do that. Yeah, yeah. And oh. there's also, what, what I found fun too is even if you can't do that, a lot, or maybe not a lot, a bunch of those have been adapted for mobile gaming. Oh, Like that's Small cool. World, if you've mm-hmm. ever played Small World, which is a really fun strategy game. There's a, you know, an iPhone, iPad app that you can play on mobile too, which, okay, it's not quite the same. No, but, but that's cool. It's still that's cool. sort of the same same idea yeah i'm definitely less of a video game player and i'm more of a poker player mm. that's like my mm-hmm. go-to game i think it's really really fun and i haven't been playing lately but yeah, i would love to get more really people. played oh like, you might really love it because it's like mathy but it's also like gut instinct yeah, and there's yeah, psychology yeah. and i don't know pokers and also 
I think it's like more of a quote unquote acceptable game for grownups to play. Mm-hmm. So it's more likely that you'll find people who are like willing to come to a poker night than like a oh, tabletop yeah, that makes game sense, night. Right. And people can drink while they're playing poker, which is yeah, great because yeah, yeah. then you can take advantage of them. Um, so I, I love it. <laughs> but okay. So there's that. But we haven't talked about Story Collider. Yeah, Story Collider. Story Collider. Um, it's Liz Neely and no. So Story Collider, there. I mean, there's a bunch of people that are on the on the team. So okay. I'll just give you the history real yeah. quick. Those, so I started Story Collider with another guy named Ben Lilly in 2010. Ben, of course. Yeah. You, oh, oh you so know Liz yeah. didn't start with Ben. No, I Liz just started Story Collider like a year ago. I have no. I have no Ben from Science Online days. Oh yeah, right. Years uh, that's ago. That's right. I forgot you guys know. Yeah. Each other. Yeah, that's, that's right. So crazy. So ben okay. and I started. Ben was a theoretical particle physicist, mm-hmm. but had left academia and was living in New York. And we ended up having the same. We were both taking storytelling at UCB in New York, not in the same class, but we had the same teacher. And then you know, I, I found out that there was another theoretical physicist. Yeah, which is probably and, pretty rare at like Upright Citizens Brigade. Yeah. Right? So the, the, well, the story that that I always tell about this is. Um, so the first day of class, uh, this teacher's name is Margot Lightman, who's just a, actually out here in L.A. now and a really, really fantastic storyteller, has a few books, cannot recommend her highly enough, uh, has us all go around the room, and it's like, you know, 10 or 12 people, and say, she's like, say something, you know, introduce yourself and say some unusual thing about yourself. It's mm-hmm. not going to be true of anyone else in the class. And I was like, well, I got this unlocked because I'm a theoretical particle physicist. And so I say that, and I said, that's, that's my unusual thing. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know another guy that does that. <laughs> And he's a storyteller too. Yeah, like my class before you. Yeah. I already met one. And uh, Come up with something new. <laughs> I knew, she said it's Ben, and I knew Ben's name from papers. Like I'd seen yeah. his name on papers. Isn't that so funny? And so I reached out and we basically did a story date. We went to a storytelling show and then oh, started Story Collider. story date. Yeah. That's so um, sweet. <laughs> and so we were like, someone should, we should do this, but for science. And started a show and that was, you know, I guess coming up on seven years ago. Holy shit. So did yeah. it start as a show or a podcast or both? Uh, it started, I mean, we, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but I think it was, podcasting was just such an obvious thing to do. The first thing we do was, it was a live show, but then it was so obvious once we had the recording to take stories from that and do it at a podcast. So, so it was pretty soon after, or even in conjunction with I think it was at the same it. time. Yeah. I mean, I might maybe, I'm, no, I'm a hundred percent sure we had stories from that first show on a podcast. Um, and Ben actually was the... Ben handled all of the podcasting stuff. He mm-hmm. either figured it out or knew how to do it or something like Is that. Is Ben still doing Story Collider? Mm-hmm. So oh, Ben cool. we now Ben was the artistic director for a while. Because basically what happened is we started it, and then I was an academic, so I wasn't even staying in New York. I was like moving around to mm-hmm. the next position. And so even though he and I did basically the first year of shows together, I soon had to leave for my job. Yeah. And we brought... Uh, another person in named Aaron Barker, who is this fantastically talented storyteller, as our co-New York producer, uh, Ben Stata as artistic director. And Ben now had, now Aaron is the artistic director, and Ben kind of does like special projects and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. I forget what his precise title is. Um, and they're both in New York. They're both in New York. I mean, they're still, Ben still hosts Story yeah. Collider there and produces the shows, uh, but is no longer the artistic director because uh, he wanted to focus on some other stuff that he uh, is doing. And now Aaron is the artistic director, and Liz, who we were talking about, Liz Neely, mm-hmm. uh, is our executive director. We're a gotcha. you know, nonprofit, and Liz joined us in coming up on a couple of years now. Oh, okay. So, yeah. And I think she was a science online person, too. I feel like yeah, I know she was at first. Compass for a long time. Okay. And what her, she's just done everything and yeah. is generally the best. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. And so, so mostly you guys are kind of 
out of New York and you do it much more regularly in New York, but you've done London shows. You're starting yeah. to do LA shows so, now. That's right. So we have regular shows right now going in New York, Boston, DC. Oh, wow. Um, we do them frequently in Atlanta. And so do you have satellite producers in those mm-hmm. places? Okay. Yep. That's so a we smart have, way to do it. Uh, Boston producers, DC producers mm-hmm. out here. Uh, I co-produced the LA show with Cassie, who I think you met at SciComm camp. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. Cause she was co-host. co-hosting yeah, with you. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to be doing a story collider. That's soon, right. I'm like, so nervous about it. You're going to be awesome. I it's do. weird because I go up on stage all the time, but like I don't tell stories. And this, guys, what you might not understand is this is like a process. They don't just let somebody be like, I want to tell a story and stand up and tell a story. They have to come up with it. They go back and forth. They help them craft it until yeah. it really is a story that that we know people want to hear, you right. know, and it's got a beginning and a middle and an end and it's interesting and it captures the audience in such a way that you guys are proud to host it on the podcast. Right. That's right. And yeah. that scares the shit out of me because I have never <laughs> taken a class at UCB and I'm actually... You're going to be a natural at it. I'm 100% sure. So you've met my friend Tegan. Tegan's been on the podcast a couple of times. Tegan and I are going to take some improv classes together just oh, to improve awesome. our on-air work, yeah, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, I can't believe never I haven't hurts, done it right? yet. It's, it's it, fun and it's, it's... It never hurts except that I'm going to shit my pants. Like I, it's like, honestly, my biggest fear in the world is to get up and just be goofy in front of people. I don't know. Yeah. It's so scary. But the, the fu- at least the thing about improv, at least one of the things I've done a bunch and my mm-hmm. wife is a very accomplished and wonderful improviser. Really? Yeah. Oh, she's hilarious. Um, and she teaches a lot too. She, uh, the thing, one of the early things you learn in improv is you never try to be funny. Yeah. Right. You lose the battle when you try to be funny. You just be yourself yeah. and react. I mean, you know, it's the acting is reacting kind of thing. Yeah. You just do what comes naturally. And then you're, if you're, if you're, if you're yourself, you're fine. But then everyone's so. watching. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty intimidating. I like know. it's, I, I don't do any of it anymore. And I never really performed regularly as an improviser. Oh, I'm never going to uh, perform. I'm no, only going to take classes. <laughs> even just doing a show here and there is like, it's scary yeah. as shit. Yeah, and for me, just, like, getting up and telling a story is going to be scary. Like, I feel really lucky, and I think that's kind of what's so amazing about Story Colliders. There's a lot of support, and there's a lot of help, so you really aren't on your own. Yeah, you know, you get You get to feel like you have sort of a, a collective behind you. Yeah. Um, I'm actually meeting with Allie Ward, who's been oh, on yeah, the show yeah, before, yeah. for tea after we get off uh, off air, awesome. and she's going to help me with the story. Perfect. I was going to have written a draft already, but she was like, don't write it yet. I want to talk to you before yeah. you write it. It's like, okay. Well, um, well, at least for us, one of the things, so we try very explicitly to get a lot of scientists on the show mm-hmm. and most scientists have like no experience, you know, even yeah. holding a microphone. That's right? true. Oh yeah. I've so, interviewed so many scientists that need help. Yeah. And they like, don't know to talk into the microphone or that sort of thing. So we very early on, we was like, we, we, we basically, we just made the decision. This is always going to be a curated show. And part of the deal is if you want to tell a story, we have to work with you on it. it yeah. It's also because we have a, a point of view and a kind of, you know, we don't want it to be luxury. That's one of the things that's really important to us is it's about the emotional side and personal side of stuff, mm-hmm. not about, you know, a detailed discussion of quarks or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, let me tell you about my science. It's like, yeah. no. And that's what every scientist wants to do. Their natural instinct, just because that's what you're trained to do, is that's to true. give detailed discussions of minutiae about science. And not just that, but to separate themselves as the actor out of it. Yes. Like, oh, it doesn't right. matter how I felt about that. That's right. not scientific. It's like, no, but that's all we care about. That's right. And that's that's our number one note to every, to every storyteller, especially those coming from a, a science background, mm-hmm. is... But how did you feel? Because you you well, you probably wouldn't be surprised the number of first drafts we get, which are 
this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Oh, no. It's just like a list of stuff. It's almost not and even first person. It's, it's like third a, yeah, person. Exactly. <laughs> and then you're like, yes, but were you upset? Were you, you know, happy? And they're like, no. what is this emotion you speak yeah. of? <laughs> and, and a lot of them do say, oh, you know, I just wrote this without even thinking about mm. that because it's how you're trained as a, as a scientist. So that's, that's so funny. I think what sets us apart from other, you know, science podcasts or, or things like that is that it is really explicitly focused on that personal narrative. I think it's also important now too, you know, if we want to communicate science to the public, we all know that people don't respond to facts, right? People respond to stories Absolutely. and the personal side and the emotional side. You have to appeal to people's emotions if and you want to. There have to be characters. Yeah, exactly. Like nobody gives a shit about anything if it doesn't have a if it's not character driven. Think of every movie right. that you know possessed you. Think of every book. Think of every podcast that you listened to. They were all character driven. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not a human character, it has to be a character. And that's like the scariest thing in the world to science scientists is to personify things. Sure. They're, they're like, that's detrimental. It's to really my hard. Science. It's why it's hard to get people to care about climate change, mm -hmm. right? Because Earth is not a character, right? Yeah. What you care about are the people being affected by exactly. it. Exactly. That's true. That's the only time you really think about it is when yeah. you think about the people. And so in those far, areas. there are so I mean, you know, the examples are getting more and more, but there are relatively few examples and they're, they're, of people. And those you people know. are so far away and they're, so different. They're, and they're yeah. very, you know, typically very underprivileged communities, right? Very poor, a lot of non-white communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and it's hard for people to put themselves in their shoes. Those stories, you, you don't hear those stories because the people are not in a position to tell them. Yeah. And so that's and also, something... Sorry, no, of course. I, also, I think w it's finding that balance, right? It's like, I don't want to hear about something depressing. For sure. It's like there has to be a silver lining or there has to be some funny aspects to it or something warm and fuzzy to it. Yeah. It can't just be one note. It's really hard to right. just sit down and go like, I'm going to, especially for a film, like a documentary. I do it all the time, but I'm like a glutton for punishment. But a lot of people are like, I don't want to sit down for two hours and just be depressed. Right, right, right. Ugh. And so that's the another cool thing about Story Collider is that like it really runs the gamut. There's like the funny-ish kind of stories. There's the warm right. emotional stories. There's the really, really sad stories. But they all kind of are so human. Yeah. And, and it, I think well, as soon as you focus on a human character, I mean, no one story generally isn't – it's not all depressing. Yeah. You know, it's not all happy. It has ups and downs and different emotions. All humans – it's mm -hmm. not, not just one emotion all the time. So every story – has a little bit of of everything, and they you know sometimes lean like you said on balance more one way or the other. But if you just listen to people talk and what they're actually feeling, it, it's going to move around anyway. So I have to ask you if you have the same experience before we'll we'll finish up after that. But I um I give talks a lot, mm -hmm. I podcast a lot, I'm in front of big crowds, and it never freaks me out when yeah. I'm talking. I it will to tell a story, I think, but like when I'm just giving a speech or whatever, that's easy. Um, I used to be a singer. I, 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 like you, went to college for music first, mm -hmm. and then I moved over. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I was a jazz uh, vocalist. And I went to the University of North Texas, which is a really big jazz oh, school. Yeah, for sure. um, and so I sang all through, like, probably, I mean, I started in elementary school, but I, I sang professionally kind of through high school and into college. Oh, wow, like, I didn't know that. yeah, and um, I don't really anymore. As a smoker for a long time, I stopped taking voice and stuff. I might get back into it just to help with my on camera work. That said, as easy it is for me to get in front of a crowd of thousands of people and give a talk, every time I got up to sing, like that 10 seconds before I started and about 30 seconds into the song, I always felt like I was going to shit my pants. <laughs> do you get that when you perform music? Not really. No. Really? And it's, How it, do you get past it? Is it just doing it a lot or is that something I'm always going to struggle with? I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it is just doing it a lot. For me also, I mean, 
I've never really had stage fright for performing, and you I know, don't feel like it's even stage fright. I don't know how or to explain whatever, it. Nervousness. It, I, well, for me, I'm also in a special position, at least mm-hmm. with Ninja Sex Party. Well, and storytelling too, because unlike let's say classical mm-hmm. music, you don't need to be perfect. And yeah. so with Ninja Sex Party, I mean, we've played. Our biggest crowd recently was we sold out the Aragon in Chicago, which is about five thousand people. Um, which is just amazing, but I'm dressed up in a ninja costume (laughs) and like everything, if you screw something up, it's a joke. It's funny. And so, well, you know, we try to get the music as as good as possible. Of course. And we're, we, you know, the uh, twerp, our backing band, super, super talented musicians. But if something really goes wrong, we can make a joke out of it because it's ultimately a comedy show more than a music show. And with storytelling, if something goes wrong, well, it's just kind of humanizing, right? But also nobody so, else knows. I no did learn that. That was an, a thing that I learned early on with choreography, right? Like I'm not a great dancer, but it was always pounded into my head. Like it's not a mistake if no one can tell you made it. Right. Like if you just roll off, if you don't stop and look freaked out like a deer in headlights, but you just turn it into whatever, like nobody knows you weren't supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's really helpful. I think you're right. As you're saying that I'm realizing like most of the time when I was performing as a musician, I was performing with a group and then I might solo and that would be really nerve wracking yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah. And I would have a coach who's watching right. and who's trained us. And it's like, you know, do the thing we've been practicing over and over and over. And it's like, I don't want to let anybody down. Yeah, exactly. But if it were just me on my own accord making the decision, maybe I wouldn't feel like I was yeah. going to shit my pants. And for Ninja Sex Party, you know, I and Dan wrote all the songs we're performing. Yeah. So it's not like it's someone else's material you're screwing up. Who's Same sitting there going like, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it right. up. Right. I mean, yeah. storytelling, you're telling your own story. And at least it, I mean, this happens all the time. You just go back, you know, if you forget something that's crucial, you say, oh, I forgot to say. Yeah. And then you just say it and no one even like no one cares. I actually I know I'm going to do that a lot. And I see people do that during storytelling. And I appreciate it, especially when like because this is just kind of my personality. When you be like, oh, oh, I almost forgot the most important part. Yeah. It just like pulls you in. For sure. You know, it's it's you're right. It's humanizing. Yeah. It's the same reason I don't really edit the podcast. It's just, I don't, maybe people don't want to hear me. Like, I think you could hear the sound of me drinking tea earlier. I didn't realize I was so close to the mic. Maybe that's kind of gross. Yeah, I was coughing. (laughs) But it's like, really, we're people. Yeah. All right. Well, Brian, I always end the show with the same two questions. Cool. And I'm going to ask you the same two. Um, When you think about the future, and this could be contextually bound however you want. So it could be like your own personal future. It could be kind of the future of the globe, the future of your community, whatever Uh the fuck. Um. The first thing is, what is the thing that, like, is most disconcerting to you? What keeps you up the most at night? Like, what are you worried about? But on the flip side of that, what are you, second question, what are you really optimistic and hopeful and excited about? Uh, Worried about, probably a million people have said this, it's climate change. change, I mean, yep, it's always the answer. (laughs) What what else are you going to say? But really, Um, it's the fucking most important one. Yeah. I mean, it is an existential threat, right? Any way you look at it. So I, you know. What am I worried about? That. And yeah. it's it's nothing we can control individually. We can contribute, but can't control it. So. And that's, yeah, it's the political shit. Yeah, there's so much to say about it. And it's like, it's it's a bummer. I kind of hate ending with these two questions because the first one makes me super depressed. So yeah. I'm kind of glad you're like, climate change, moving yep. on. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what, uh, what fills me with hope is, uh, or what I'm excited about is it really, this is something that comes from, from YouTube, mm-hmm. which is watching communities be activated and engaged and supportive. And I know a lot of what you hear online, 
you know, or people like trolls and really horrible shit going on. Especially but, with YouTube. Especially with YouTube. Yeah. But what you, I think you hear less of and what I see whenever we meet fans or do shows or, or storytelling or whatever is you see uh, people supporting each other and mm-hmm. really becoming part of a, a, a real actual community, not, you know, like a, a fake, you know, hypothetical one, but a real community of people who are mm-hmm. looking out for each other and supporting each other. And one thing I'm very hopeful for for the future is, especially you know, whether you want to talk about politically, you know, progressivism kind of being activated by all the stuff that's going on now, or even, you know, just otherwise marginalized uh, groups of, of people, them coming together to be a supportive force for, for one another. Absolutely. You know, there really is something to be said about the fact that we have this tool to connect us. So now if you were living in a smaller town or a community where you were maybe like a little shy or nervous to try and find or or it's just not your way to go out and try to meet people and you have such specific interests and goals, you can find people that are so similar to you that are so like minded, which mm-hmm. is kind of what it means to find your your people, right. right? To find your group. And it used to be really hard to do that. And now For it's sure. so easy. And the yeah. the sad part is you may not be able to see each other in the flesh as often as you'd like, but because there are, you know, you've got these YouTube channels that unify people, and then a lot of times they are um Kind of genre specific, mm-hmm. so then there's like a con that you can go. Well, to exactly. That's what like... I was going to say. Is uh, there are opportunities at cons, mm-hmm. at shows. So when we do the the major sex party shows or the game grump shows, which I, I actually don't do the the game grump stuff, but I've been to a bunch of mm-hmm. them. Seeing people come together and say, "Oh, I finally this is my group, and I'm finally in the same place." Yeah, and they're there like, "Oh my god, you're RJ two seven nine. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 dude, I was just responding to you. Right, like, exactly. It's super cool. Yeah. So I think there's. I mean, it's to me. I've seen it just a bunch of times over the past year. It is, it, it, it it's just, it's a wonderful feeling to yeah. see people coming together and, you know, and just being a part of something big. I love that, well, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on thank the show, you, Kara. This is super fun. Super fun. Before you go, let everybody know like where they can find you on Twitter or Facebook or you know your YouTube pages, like how they can reach out. Yeah. Uh, so on Twitter, you can find me my personal account at bwecht b w e c h t. That correctly, um, <laughs> and then uh, the two channels are Ninja Sex Party, which is musical comedy, all social media stuff like that. You can it's all Ninja Sex Party, so you can find us there. And uh, Game Grumps, same thing. YouTube, all the all the various socials. And I think I'm bewecked on Instagram and maybe a couple other things. Are you a big Instagrammer? Uh, I I big like I do a bunch of it. It's you do mainly I, the the social media platform I like the most is Twitter. Me too, by uh, far. But Instagram. It, I, I I like Instagram a lot too. I'm trying to get better at it. It's mostly pictures of my dog. Yeah, I do a bunch of those. Yeah. <laughs> it, for me, it's a lot of pictures of my daughter because she is yeah. you know two and a half and just at the Adorable. cutest possible yeah. age right now. Um. So, but yeah, for for Game Grumps, we do a lot of Instagram. Awesome. And, and very very cool. Well, yeah. again, thank you so much for joining me. Super fun and for um having a nice spot of tea. Yeah. Thank you. It's great. And everybody listening. Thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.